It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 52, Judge Tola, Jer, and Jephthah. After Abimelech, two minor judges, Tola and Jer, ruled Israel or just parts of Israel. Judges 10, 1. After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar named Tola, son of Puah, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamar, in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamar. That's it for Tola. I mean, he was from the tribe of Issachar and he led Israel in the area of Ephraim. It doesn't say he fought a battle or had any victories. It just says he rose to save Israel. He was most likely a reformer or humble stabilizing force after the time of Abimelech, but his time of judging was quite long, 23 years. Also, knowing what we know about the timeline in Judges, could it be Tola actually fought in the battles with Barak and Gideon, and was now an old man ruling with wisdom, bringing a stable force to Israel? Maybe, but there's so little to work with. Here's the next minor judge, Judges 10.3. He was followed by Jer of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Haviath Jer. When Jer died, he was buried in Kaman. So we can read a lot and a lot more into Jer. He lived in Gilead on the east side of the Jordan. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. What an epithet that he had 30 sons from multiple marriages who showed their wealth and rode around very pompous on their donkeys, displaying their status and wealth. In his day, having and riding a donkey was a display of wealth. Jer was a polygamist, and he was probably really loaded and liked to show off his status. Could it be, again considering the flexibility of the timeline, that Jer was a puppet king of Israel's oppressors, or that Deborah was singing of these pompous guys across the Jordan who rode around on their donkeys in Judges 5.10 when she derogatorily addressed those who rode on white donkeys sitting on their saddle blankets and you who walk along the road. Now we get to our major judge for the remainder of the episode, Jephthah. Judges 10.6 Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For eighteen years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. 
Sin has multiplied itself, and the cycle of sin has accelerated Israel to the point of destruction. The eastern bank of the Jordan has been invaded. Then the Ammonites invaded Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. We don't know for sure how this happens, but the priesthood is still in existence, and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant are still apparently functioning in a priestly capacity, which is mentioned and not mentioned in the book of Judges. But they survive into the kingdom age, and especially the Ark of the Covenant is a major player in the books of Samuel. And we'll cover the continuation of the priesthood in a further episode as well. So we don't know for sure, but this is my take at the time of the invasion. Israel runs and prays at the place of the tabernacle and cries out to God. And since we don't have a prophet talking about at this time, God talks through the priest and his ways at the tabernacle. Here's the account of the massive prayer meeting, Judges 10.10. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites cried to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you do best. But please rescue us now. Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gibeah, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be the head over all who live in Gilead. Now the cycle of sin has turned. Israel has an enemy army in the land. Israel has repented, and God was going to rise up a judge. They have assembled an army, and all they need is a leader. It's really wild here that they assemble an army without a true leader at this point. There was an army in the waiting. Now the account goes on to explain our judge. Judges 11.1 Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. I mean, you got to love how it starts for this guy. The writer of Judges doesn't beat around the bush. He was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother, a prostitute. Wow. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's like God saying, hey, remember that horrible Abimelech who was a child of a concubine? He turned out to be a loser. But not to think that God only chooses the legitimate. The next hero is a child of a prostitute. Judges 11.2 Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. My take from this account and the location of Gilead makes me think that Jephthah has to flee to a land that gets taken over by the Ammonites, who originally invade the land east of the Jordan. I kind of see him rising up against the Ammonites with these group of scoundrels fighting from a forest or hilltops, possibly rising up like a Robin Hood behind enemy lines, so much so his reputation increases in Israel. Judges 11.4 
Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why did you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over the people. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So Jephthah has street smarts. He's a mighty warrior, and they want his services, and he wasn't going to just let them walk all over him again. Even if he was a humble man, he wanted to make sure they wouldn't hurt him again. Reminds me of Joseph in Egypt. He wanted to make sure they were serious about their change of heart. At this point, Jephthah receives control of Israel's army that was assembled, which lacked a leader until now. Fascinating to consider what's going on here. An army waiting in the wings. In Judges 10.17, the Israelites assembled for war, and they said to each other, Who will be our leader? Imagine, they've got, let's say, 40,000 soldiers waiting for battle, and they have no true leader. Seriously, what country assembles an army without a commander? It's really such a crazy thought that in their hearts they were saying, Who will be our commander? I mean, it sounds so ludicrous, and I can't get over it, that they assembled an army without a true leader. It's so outlandish, we will be attempting to compound on this at the end of the episode. It's amazing to think that Jephthah was prepared by God for this moment, that his army was prepared for him. Unknown to him, God was preparing and setting up everything for this moment. All of his unknown previous military exploits had trained him for this moment. Jephthah was not only a mighty fighter, but he also seemed to have abundant knowledge of history, as well as God's word, and he's well-spoken, for we get his complete dialogue with the soon-to-be-defeated Ammonite king. Now, don't get me wrong, Jephthah has his standard set of Judges' character flaws, which we will get to later. Judges eleven twelve. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back to me peacefully. Jephthah sent messengers back to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up, out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea, on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through their country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent, they sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next they traveled along the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom, and Moab passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was their border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all of his troops and encamped at Jaaz and fought against Israel. 
Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take over what your God Shemos gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For three hundred years, Israel occupied Heshbon Arur, the surrounding settlements and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed the Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. In summary, Jephthah asked the king of the Ammonites why he was invading their land. He answered because Israel took it from them 300 years ago. But Jephthah went further back and educated him why Israel had the land in the first place. Because Sihon attacked Israel, and they were forced to destroy him because Sihon attacked them first, and Israel seized the land. He even said, Are you better than Balak, king of Moab? This is the same king who hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. Jephthah really understood his history and was educating their enemies, but they wouldn't listen. What is significant about Jephthah's understanding of history is that he understood the power of God. And their testimonies, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. God did it before, he can do it again. And Jephthah understood this. But there are some things that Jephthah didn't understand very well. And this is the strangest part of the story. And unfortunately, it dominates the rest of his life and legacy. Judges 11, 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of my door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns from Aurora to the vicinity of Meneth, as far as abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Here's where the story gets really strange. Judges 11.34 When Jephthah returned to his home in Mespah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have devastated me. You brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promise, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. 
So there's a lot of debate here. Did Jephthah actually sacrifice his own daughter? Many Bible commentaries point to him fulfilling his vow, but many don't as well. But most Jewish traditional sources have him isolating her and preventing her from getting married and not sacrificing her. We will cover some of these views, but let's address the spiritual concept of vows first. Simply typing in this search in Google, what does the Bible say about keeping your vows, brings up a great Christian site for biblical questions. The site is gotquestions.org. Here is their response to this question. And I'm going to pretty much read this article because it's well written. Here it is. Question. What does the Bible say about keeping your vows? Answer. There are about 30 biblical references to vows, most of which are from the Old Testament. The books of Leviticus and Numbers have several references to vows in relation to offerings and sacrifices. There were dire consequences for the Israelites who made and broke vows, especially vows to God. The story of Jephthah illustrates the foolishness of making vows without understanding the consequences. Before leading the Israelites in a battle against the Ammonites, Jephthah described as a mighty man of valor, made a rash vow that he would give the Lord whoever came out of the doors to meet him if he returned home as the victor. When the Lord granted victory, the one who came out to meet him was his daughter. Jephthah remembered his vow and offered her to the Lord. Whether or not Jephthah should have kept this vow is dealt with in another article. What this account shows is the foolishness of rash vows. Perhaps this is why Jesus gave a new commandment concerning vows. Again, you have heard what it is said to the people long ago. Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it be by God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, or your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And this is from Matthew 5.33. The principle here is clear for Christians. Do not make vows either to the Lord or to one another. First, we are unable to know for sure whether we will be able to keep vows. The fact that we are prone to the errors in judgment, which are part of our fallen nature, means that we may make vows foolishly or out of immaturity. Further, we don't know what the future will bring. Only God knows. We, don't know, we do not know what will happen tomorrow. So to make a vow that we will do or not do something is foolish. God is the only one in control, not us. Knowing this, we can see that it is unnecessary to make vows and that it indicates a lack of trust in Him. Finally, Jesus commands that our word be sufficient without making vows. When we say yes or no, that's exactly what we should mean. Adding vows or oaths to our words opens us up to the influence of Satan, whose desires to trap us and compromise our Christian testimony. If we have made a vow foolishly and realize we cannot or should not keep it, we should confess it to God, knowing that He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. A broken vow, while serious, is not an unforgivable matter if taken to the Lord in true confession. God will not hold us to vows made imprudently, 
but he expects us to obey Jesus and refrain from making vows in the future. So there you go. thought that was a well-written article which sums up vows. We'll see many more in the future, and King Saul's vow will be forthcoming, and it's really a piece of work as well. All right, so back to the question, did he sacrifice his daughter? I like to favor the fact that he didn't, because it's just hard to fathom something so ludicrous. Josephus supports the the fact that he did actually sacrifice his daughter, but nearly every other Jewish traditional account of this story states he allowed her to live, but prevented her from marrying. And some have her living in seclusion, others have her petitioning to marry to the Sanhedrin, but they refuse. There's a lot of different accounts, and all of them are quite colorful and interesting. Also, others that agree with this perspective support it with the fact that she mourned that she wasn't going to get married. Instead of just mourning being killed or being cut short from your life, um, she truly was mourning because she wasn't getting married. Regardless of Jephthah's supposed or not supposed sacrifice of his daughter, his time as a judge actually declines, just like Gideon's. Now, the story actually gets worse. Remember back at the time of Judges when the tribe of Benjamin was nearly destroyed. In the next scene, out of nowhere, Ephraim nearly gets wiped out. These true tribes, Ephraim and Benjamin, suffer the most during the time of Judges, and it was self-inflicted. Judges 12:1. The Ephraimite forces were called out, and they crossed over to Zaphron. They said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And although I called you, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw you that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now, why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because of Ephraimites and said, You Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim, and whenever a survivor of the Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he replied no, then they said, Say Shibboleth. And if he said, Shivaleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly. They seized him and killed him at the forge of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that day. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. All right, 42,000 casualties is a bit much to only have seven verses. It's really ridiculous to have that kind of slaughter. We could trace some roots of Ephraim's issues to an episode or two back when they confronted Gideon after his battle. Their arrogance caught up with them, but we we want to trace it further. If you want to trace it further back, you can go back to Micah's idol, which came from Ephraim. And of course, the falling apart of morality of the nation of Israel. But really, and honestly, Jephthah could have just whooped him. He didn't have to slaughter him at the Jordan. It was an unnecessary slaughter. He could have just given them an embarrassing defeat and sent them packing. But cutting them off from the Jordan and systematically slaughtering them based upon 
those who had that specific um, accent and the result was 42,000 dead. To conclude this episode a Message to Kings, let's take the account personal and honestly I, I want to look at the gold in Jephthah. We can spend a lot of time going over his errors with his vow and rage at the end of the episode, but I have to go back to what we discussed with Gideon. He was God's chosen vessel of deliverance. He was God's man. He had abundant character flaws, but God chose him. Let's discuss the calling and high points of Jephthah's life related to you as a listener. There are many parallels between Jephthah and the everyday person. Imagine you are Jephthah, and your name means you will open. You've been rejected by your family. Your family reputation is awful. Your mom was a prostitute, and you always question who your father actually was. You fought against worthlessness your whole life. Your family rejected you and kicked you out of town. You are familiar with rejection and suffering and being despised by people and family in your own town. You flee to a foreign land and find yourself living as a refugee, fighting to survive. In the middle of it all, you find some peace. You find people are giving you respect for the first time as you fought off horrible men and bandits in the wastelands outside of Israel. Slowly your reputation as a mighty man grows, and other foreigners join you because who you are and what you stand for. Rebellion against an evil nation. Because of your associations and your long beard, and the fact that people know you are an Israelite, and the bandits around you, you become a wanted criminal when the Ammonites invade the land. One day, you look around and realize you have 400 men around you, and you come to understand that you really are a mighty warrior. You are important, and people really respect you. You fight off many Ammonite attacks upon your men, and your reputation only grows. Another day, you sit alone, which is rare, and you reflect upon a dream when God revealed himself to you. And you begin to soften and reflect upon God's changing of your heart. You forgive your brothers and those that hurt you, and you begin to spend more time with God. Wondering where life has taken you, remembering the words God gave you in another dream, that you will save Israel. Picturing in your head the entire army of Israel assembled in a valley below, just like the dream. Your guerrilla army grows and your resistance to the Ammonites east of the Jordan grows as even your reputation goes ahead of you. One day a bearded Israelite comes into the camp. He calls upon you, Jephthah, and tells you the heads of the tribes are calling upon you to lead their armies to defeat the Ammonites. You gracefully answer in peace because forgiveness is in your heart. But you respond in wisdom, asking for their allegiance to you, not to be their king, but to protect you against a betrayal later. Days later, the messenger returns and agrees to your request. Your small army heads back to Israel and approaches Mizpah, where the army is assembled and you emerge from a hill. You look down upon a valley where thousands are assembled awaiting your command. You, Jephthah, fall to your knees in tears, remembering the dream God gave you and the words that he said, You will save Israel.
What you just heard was how I see the scene developing. It's not the actual account, but it helps explain the moment when God brings together so many things in one's life. A personal encounter with gifts and talents and education and resources to that divine moment in time. What I find amazing in this scene is, of course, the divine setup. At least 40,000 soldiers had no commander. Are you kidding me? There was only one man that was prepared and capable of pulling off this battle. You, Jephthah. God has prepared each and every one of us to fulfill a unique moment in history. When our gifts and talents and history and walk with God come together with kingdom resources to defeat and tear down a stronghold and demonic challenge against God's purposes on earth. In the case of Jephthah, it all came together at this moment. An army prepared for him when he was in the wilderness. An army to overthrow the devil's purposes for Israel. Just like his name, he opens. His life and purposes open up a way for Israel to return to God. Just like Jephthah, you open a way for others to return to God through your faithfulness and obedience to God. No matter if people have rejected you or thrown you out, or if you were once despised and broken, God does not see you the same way as others. God sees you as a promise of things to come and great works to be performed for his name. You are God's promise of things to come. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we continue our look at the Judges of Israel. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com.